Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. And now, here are Josh and Roy. Now we say hi. Thank you. How's everybody? Echoing Roy, thank you so much for coming out on a Friday. Yeah, thank you. Roy came all the way from Gardena. <laughs> yeah, I was in Gardena. I was actually, I was actually here in, in the morning, and then I went to Ricky's Fish Taco, and then I had to go to Gardena, and I came exact the exact same spot nice. where I started. And so, but I got lucky. The 110 was really loose today. <laughs> well, this is, uh, I, I gave my first ever book reading about 10 years ago for my first book here. Um, and there was totally this many people here for that. So it's cool to have the same size crowd. Um, so uh, this project, um, as you just heard, uh, began really as a sequel um, to Songs in the Key of Los Angeles, which was a project we did um, about uh, two years ago now um, with Los Angeles Public Library, uh, a project with the Library Foundation of Los Angeles um, that was based on their special collections. Um, and Ken Brecker, the president of the foundation, asked if I would come in with some of my students and look through some old sheet music, um, 100,000 pieces of old sheet music, uh, and see what was there. And we put together the first ever archive of Los Angeles sheet music. Um, and what we did with that collection kind of set the stage for this project, which is um, we respected it as a, um, you know, as a collection that had been taken care of by librarians. Um, and then said, though, how do we take these artifacts and these objects and bring them to life uh, in exciting new ways? How do we use um, these turn of the 20th century, these songs from the 1800s, early 1900s, to start important conversations about culture and identity and race and economics and class in contemporary Los Angeles. And so we did that by, that by having a bunch of concerts throughout the city uh, where musicians uh, recorded the songs for the first time, reinterpreted them, um, and um, did, did a small exhibit. Uh, and that kind of got us going with this idea that archives should be animated um, and, be, and kind of brought back to life, cultural archives brought back to life in ways that start important conversations in the present. And the library said, well, do you want to do another one? Um, we have this little menu collection. Um, and the menu collection, how many people have seen the menu collection online? I mean, it's a very... Hey, man. Uh, it's a very, very well-known collection. It's been written about um, by journalists and bloggers over the years. Um, and it's mostly digitized. Um, there's about 9,000 menus online that the library has. The collection is now up to 13,000 restaurant menus. Um, and they asked if I wanted to go through it um, and see what... Um, what kind of projects we could do. Um, so like with the first project, we did this book, To Live and Dine in L.A., which we're really, really proud of, with Angel City Press, who also did the first book, and they're here tonight. I want to thank Angel City for their incredible, incredible work. Um, but we've also done a series of public programs talking about food history um, with chefs, talking about food justice uh, with activists and organizers like Ron Finley, who's in the house tonight, um, and um, events like this, hanging out with Roy, talking about these things. And then August 9th, we've got the grand finale. We've got postcards we can hand out. We're at the Regent Theater where, um, do you want to describe it? Oh, man, this is going to be a beautiful night. Uh, 
this is Los Angeles. You all know dilated peoples, right? Yeah. Right? You can't spell L.A. without dilated. Um, <laughs> the thing is, um, we have Raka. He's going to be our host. And then we have, uh, we're basically putting on a hip-hop cypher show using these menus as a guide and as, as a journey. So not only hip-hop, but we're going to have different artists and different performers interpret each menu, but also talk about social justice. We're going to have Evan Kleiman do a live episode of Good Food. Um, we're going to have the opera singer, right? Yep, Susana Guzman, for, yep. Uh, mezzo-soprano for the LA Opera, is going to sing her favorite menu from growing up in East LA, El Tepayac. Yeah. So you will hear El Tepayac yeah. as an aria. So it goes from that all the way to Supernatural, who holds the world record for freestyling. Um, and he may just not stop. <laughs> so I don't know if there's a curfew at the Regent Theater, but he, he literally may but not stop. But the trick, can I spoil the yeah. trick, the surprise? Yeah. The trick is going to be that, you know, when you freestyle, you usually need a few clues, something to get you going. Uh, and so Supernat is going, has agreed to freestyle based on what Roy cooks and what Roy, what ingredients Roy mm -hmm. gives him live on stage. Yeah, and so it'll be a great night. It's just going to be a celebration and we're really going to almost create a concert out of the book. So it'll be fun to see that. We'd love to see all there. I think it's really affordable. It's 20 bucks. Yep. What's the date again? August 9th. August 9th. Lots of special guests too, so come, come. Okay, so why are we sitting here together? Um, uh, I think you know, a really important part of my journey in, in writing this book and working with my students was realizing very quickly um, that I didn't know a lot of stuff and I needed to learn a lot of stuff really quick. Um, and the first thing I wanted to do was go through the menu collection um, with a chef. And uh, I had been following Roy's work as a chef, but then saw him give uh, a talk at the Mad 3 conference um, that some of you might have seen. It's online. You can watch it. Um, that was a kind of clarion call, um, kind of meditating on his successes with the Kogi truck and other ventures, but also your frustrations, right, about kind of what um, kind of the challenges of actually feeding a city. Kind of. I mean, it was, yeah, it, it all kind of happened in the moment. I, I got invited to a conference called MAD in Copenhagen, which is basically like a G20 summit of chefs. It's the best chefs in the world. Um, and I, I'm usually not invited to these type of things, you know. And, um, and I didn't know if I'd ever be invited again. So I figured I'd take that moment and just talk about something I thought was really important, which is that I felt like we as chefs weren't feeding enough people. And so I figured what better moment than the 600 best chefs in one room together and basically tell them the truth. And um, the theme of the whole conference was called Guts, so it was kind of like building up the guts to to tell the best chefs in the world that you you need to change what's going on. You guys need to step up a little bit. Surprisingly, they took it pretty well. <laughs> they, didn't, they had a lot of tomatoes, but they didn't throw them. You know? But when you say step it up, you were talking specifically about issues around food justice. Food justice, um, the amount of people that we are serving as chefs. If we're the ones that hold the, uh, are the gatekeepers to food, we can't continue to just only serve the affluent and the people privileged enough to afford it or access it. Does, it's, not, it's not the fault of people who are privileged to be able to go out and eat a nice meal, but we as chefs, that can't be the only audience we continue to feed. Even though the audience had gotten younger, um, in my mind, we still were living within the same bubble. And so it was like, um, how can we as chefs, if we're the ones that really know how to cook as human beings on this earth, if we're actually the ones, then 
maybe it's our responsibility to figure out how we can help others really not not like challenge others but help others help these institutions help jails help hospitals help school systems um, help fast food you know so it was kind of a it was kind of like that and when I when I heard um, the talk it it, plant, it really did plant that that um, idea and that seed in my head of trying to really understand the um, Contradictions, I guess, that we're all living with uh, in terms of, a, a, you know, intense interest in food, um, so-called foodie culture, food scenes, um, uh, at the same time as that there's a tremendous hunger problem here in Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, and I was about to embark on a project on restaurant menus, um, which... If you one way to read restaurant menus is they are documents of privilege, right? They're documents of people being able to afford, uh, you know, who can afford to eat. Uh, and I'm embarking on that project with the LA Public Library, right? Which is the opposite of of that idea of privilege, which is about serving everybody um, and providing hot lunches during the summer and having immigration corners and tutoring after school. And so it was this this kind of tricky moment of like, how do we actually you know pay, pay homage and pay tribute to the um, fascinating restaurant history um, of Los Angeles, while at the same time addressing the fact that according to the USDA, Los Angeles is is quote the epitome, um, sorry, is the epicenter of hunger um, in the United States, the epicenter of hunger. In the United States. Um, we have the highest um, food insecurity rate for young people um, more than any other county in the United States. Nearly two out of ten families um, are food insecure. Skyrocketing obesity rates, um, uh, growing food deserts, food apartheid. Um, uh, a lot of people doing important work like Ron in South Los Angeles. Uh, Roy's working on local, which I'm sure we'll talk about, um, in Watts. Uh, and so how do we do this project about restaurant history that, that is about the Brown Derby uh, and is about Perino's and is about Laurie's and about all these, these iconic places? That's also a way to get us to think about um, these, these important issues. And so um, because of Raka, yeah, um, I got to Roy. Up. And Raka said I was mildly cool enough, <laughs> and Roy could hang with me. So we went, and I invited Roy um, to the special collections, the library. Yeah. Um, so we he got in touch with me. We met at the caf at a cafe at our cafe Three Worlds Cafe, and uh, you know this whole idea of social like this could have easily become just a coffee table book. You know, um, it, it just had so much. There was so much information and so many resources for us to almost like just an art book to just put it together and put little captions in many ways but the moment we met it's just weird it's almost like it just came with the wind that we just it, it, we had to talk about these things as well and balance it because there's so many facets of LA there is the brown derby and ships and bob's big boy but there was there's we also thought there has to be another side of this, another reflection of Los Angeles and what do the menus that we don't see tell us and what do the menus that we do see also tell us. And so, yeah, um, I, I really wanted to write the book with Josh, um, but I couldn't. So did so, Josh. Yeah, so yeah. did Josh. Yeah. Um, but uh, because of L.A. Sun, which you see back here, um, I couldn't do it with another publisher, so I kind of... I kind of stayed back as kind of a, a kind of just a spiritual guide in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, uh, wrote the forward and uh, just stayed on as kind of um, 
I like to call it like the Don Zimmer of, of the book, you know, just if Joe Torre needed something answered, I was there, you know. That's and, right. It's true. Yeah, and so... Um, and met with my students. Met with uh, the students, met went to the worlds. vault, yep. and the vault was great. It was like uh, one of those spy movies. They took us upstairs. There's a couple doors you go through. By vault, he means the rare book the room rare of the book. library. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. And then he took out this box, and they put it on the table, and I thought you had to wear gloves, but we didn't have to wear gloves, and... Uh, and he, they took everything out. It was uh, wasn't it was a little anticlimactic. I was, I, was, I was hoping it was a little like Indiana Jones, where dust would fall and uh, come up, but it wasn't that dramatic. But it was still Next pretty time. exciting. It was really exciting to go there. And um, and then we opened. And the moment we opened the first kind of Manila folder, I think yeah. the book started to really speak to us. Yeah, but I mean, to be really fair, like I mean, I oh, we opened the, the first folder was the earliest menus in libraries collections, are from the late 1800s. Um, and all of them were from private banquets um, and elegant balls and elegant feasts, um, all in downtown Los Angeles. And so historically, they're just amazing documents, right? But we opened it, and Roy's reaction to it, well, I mean, you appreciated them for what they were, but your reaction to them was, was not, it didn't stop there. What, what, what was my reaction? Your reaction was, was these are documents of where wealthy people ate. Oh, so yeah. where did everybody else eat? Yeah. That's and that kind, was that the kind of set time. the tone. It set the, the tone. It, it planted yeah. that that crucial question in my head of like, all right, I've got to read against the grain of these menus, right? I've got to actually see the menus not just as lists of dishes um, with prices, um, but as urban texts, as social documents that tell us that 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 ideally will force us to think about um, social inequities. Um, uh, changing patterns in, 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 in economics, issues of culture, issues of class and race, um, and it planted those, those, those early seeds. Yeah, and it also, um, Josh, as we worked through the book, he mentioned something really important, that there were also um, kind of stories as well. There were stories of authors. We, we, we just automatically equate authors with books, right, which is true, but... Um, but then we also realized that these menus were kind of like books to these to these chefs or restaurateurs, and they were almost writing their own little story of Los Angeles. There's a buzz going on, right? Yeah. Can we stop that in any way? <laughs> Shit's fucking me up right now. <laughs> Uh, if not, we're going to have to get through it together. That's right. <laughs> so um, as a result, Roy um, kindly wrote the foreword. And I thought what we'd do is I could read a little bit um, from the beginning mm -hmm. of the book, and then Roy will read his foreword. Okay. Um, the piece I want to read um, is not necessarily about the menus and the collection itself, but um, I, I also had to find my own way in. I work in a very personal way uh, in my own writing. Um, I approach um, my scholarship and my research from a very autobiographical and personal angle. Um, uh, and I had to really sit back and think about my own relationship to these stories. I grew up born and raised here in Los Angeles, um, and I had to kind of just think about my own connection to restaurants and to menus. Um, so I'll just read the, um, the beginning of the book. My grandfather fled the Nazi takeover of Hungary for a life in L.A. restaurants. His first local job in 1951 was waiting tables at the Brown Derby on Wilshire. He served cracked Alaska king crab, chicken a la king, and cob salad for $2 each, crab meat Louie for 25 cents more, and for the high rollers willing to part with 285, the all-white meat creamed turkey derby topped with cranberry jelly. He left the derby for another Wilshire mainstay, Ollie Hammond's Steakhouse, where he took orders from red leather booths for both the world's finest small steak and the world's thickest small steak. 
The thickness was worth 75 cents. And alongside Chateaubriand for two and a steak and eggs that was being modest really was filet mignon, eggs, hotcakes, bacon, and coffee. And the wordy menu made his job easier. Please realize that this is not the normal manner in which we serve our steaks, it told anyone eyeing the steak and spaghetti platter. And its desserts came with a confession. We do not bake our own desserts or freeze our own ice cream. We can buy better ones. <laughs> My grandfather's old world accent was still fresh in those days, and he fit right in at Little Gypsy, a Hungarian restaurant up on Sunset. He kept his black bow tie straight, his white shirt pressed, and his white jacket as spotless as one can when balancing plates of Magyar Faji Rojot, Kolishvari, stuffed cabbage, and Schwegediner paprika chicken. If you didn't want a trip back to the old country, he also served assimilation on a plate. Hamburger steaks, New York cuts, top sirloin, and other welcome-to-America dishes cordoned off from the goulash and schnitzel on the menu's left page. Little Gypsy wasn't the only Hungarian place in town, and soon my grandfather's waiter wages were enough to earn him an ownership piece of the Budapest Hungarian restaurant on Fairfax, where my father dispatched meal tickets after his junior year classes at Hamilton High. And if any of you have ever listened to music in the old Largo, then you've sat amongst the Budapest's bones. Its menu was pure national fantasy, with an aerial shot of the Danube and the Hungarian parliament on its cover, and a shot of an elegant outdoor restaurant in Budapest on the back. It did far more than describe what you could order. It was time travel, an exile's return ticket home, with imported Hungarian wine, chicken paprikash, and nakarol as an in-flight meal. Though you were probably wise to avoid its roast goose, which was once described by Paul Wallach as tasting like, quote, it had been cooking since last Yom Kippur. <laughs> After selling his share of the Budapest, my grandfather went back to waiting tables at the steakhouse at the downtown Hilton, where he worked for over two decades. The only possession of his that I still have is a gift that was given to him by the Hilton when he left to take yet another job waiting tables at the Ramada. They spelled his name the old Hungarian way, Nikolas, and thanked him for 23 years of service on the back of a gold-plated pocket watch. And so Roy and his forward also approached it in a very autobiographical way. Wow, you're a great reader. <laughs> <laughs> you really are. Thanks, Roy. <laughs> well, seriously, you should do books books on tape. Um, that's one. That was wonderful. It was Thank really. You. Thanks, man. Is this this Justin? Huh? Is this? Yeah. Do you think this, yeah. we have the Justin room? There it is in the book. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. Well, thank you. Yeah, um, you're a good chef. That was a that was that was beautiful. And, and like Josh says, I. Mine was very personal as well. Um, so thank you for letting me indulge you here. Um, here we go. Uh, I, never, I never really thought about history too much when I was growing up in and around Los Angeles. Life was always in the moment. The town seemed to exude and reinforce that state of being in everything that we did. We moved a lot, and even when we weren't moving, I was moving a lot through my car or cruising the streets. It was a city filled with people coming for all kinds of different reasons, whether immigrant dreams or dreams of playing an immigrant in a Hollywood movie. The weather made it only worse in a good way. Blue skies and warm air would act as cleansers. Each day was a new day, no matter what the day before was like or what would come after. You know, that L.A. shit. Um, we never talk about the good old days. We talk about the days to come. We never say that can't be done. We say, let's get it done. It's a constant phoenix of a city built on the ashes of people's past. A city in the moment always figuring itself out. This even guided the way I experienced menus as I ate growing up in this vast wonderland. 
Menus were never that important. They just belonged to the moment. Many of the meals I ate then and even today involved no menu or a very simplified one. I grew up eating at home or in Korean restaurants, taco trucks, burger stands, convenience stores, Chinese and Vietnamese cafes, delis, and coffee shops. The menus were either non-existent, handwritten, on, car- on cardboard, in pictures, on a small plastic table tent, mutually understood, or sometimes if there was one at all, it never changed. I remember the times I encountered quote-unquote real menus in fancy restaurants, and even then those big sheets of embalmed paper nestled in a heavy book felt more like a museum piece to me. It didn't feel like the city I knew or the life I led. It felt like a relic from a place I never understood, a play in a town of entertainers putting on a show. It felt unreal. Then I became a chef, and I started to write my own menus. How I write them comes from my upbringing. I don't challenge conventional wisdom just for the sake of ruffling feathers, but I do write some weird-ass menus. (laughs) Some of my menus don't even have words, and some are just pictures. And the truck that gave me a second life started with no menu, just tacos and burritos. I just wrote them in the rhythm of how life was being led and what I was feeling, and I trusted if you were here in L.A., you'd get it. See, she gets it, or he gets it. Because we all get it. Because we live it. When I was first approached about this project, it got me thinking about our city again. But this time, for the first time in a historical sense. It got me thinking about where I am and what my place is in the context of L.A. food and menus. And it got me thinking about where we are in our city and its opportunities and its disparities with re- in regard to food. It got me thinking about what people were eating and what that said about the times. Were there problems with accessibility and affordability? Were there chefs? Were there those, what were those chefs saying? Who was eating the food in Los Angeles at the turn of the last century as the century grew? Then I felt like Christopher Reeve in Somewhere in Time when he touches the pocket watch and goes back to the past. I walked into the rare book vault in the halls of the Los Angeles City Library and librarians brought out the menu and time became an illusion. Los Angeles had forever changed for me. I finally started to feel the history of our city, but not from an intellectual standpoint, from a visceral one. Every menu I touched brought me to to that place. Not only those who ate the food, but those who wrote each menu, their lives, what they were thinking, the printer who printed it, how long it took to deliver it by carriage or foot, the special parties they were written for, especially one that was a special dinner for Albert Einstein. The more I looked at the menus, the more they told me about the city and how neighborhoods developed. But it was the menus that I couldn't find that started to force me to ask questions about how life really was. I started to think about how the city is now, and if missing menu, the missing menus were a reflection of life just as it is now, were these menus of the affluent and middle class? Were the working class even eating with menus, or were they mostly eating at stands and carts? Were there disparities and access problems just like we have today? And especially in the early days when many of the menus were from Pasadena and Mid-Wilshire, how were the restaurants getting the food? There weren't big stores and delivery trucks and refrigeration. How was the food distributed? So my menus are a story I write every day, and the story is a reflection of my past, but also a keyhole into what I'm going through. For many of us who have a hard time with grammar and structure, like me, a menu is a way to tell you something in our own way, like a song. So this is our song to you, a book filled with other songs, stories written in menus with the people who built the city in the moment. I hope you enjoy the pages of this book and find a little bit of yourself and the identity of a city through these guides to what people ate and cooked. I hope you realize that a menu can be a gateway into someone's soul, even if there's no menu at all. So that's that's what leads you into the book. (laughs) 
And I, I think like that that um, what Roy captured in that forward is what is how we all relate to menus, right? It's how when you, if it's a menu that you're eating at at a restaurant now, menus from your childhood, uh, we've got a wonderful exhibit that's up on the Central Library in the Getty Gallery, the second floor, really incredible um, display of about 60 of the 13,000 menus with lots of other stuff um, that is all laid out at a big welcome table where to, in order to see the menus, you've got to sit down at the table and interact with them in the ways that Roy was talking about. Um, in order to then take the next steps from you know, our own personal investments and the things that we were both thinking about um, came the research time. Um, when I did Songs in the Key of LA, I went out and I asked my students and research assistants at USC to go grab me every single book that had been written about early music in Los Angeles. Uh, and that filled up about half my office. Um, when I said, okay, let's go get all the books that have been written about the history of food in Los Angeles, the office has got plenty of room. Um, there's nothing. There's nothing. There's not a single book that has been written on the long history of food in Los Angeles. Uh, I know this is where everyone in the audience goes, what? He's wrong. He can't be right. Um, I'm so right that I went to, I went to, the, to, the, to the godfather of all of these questions, uh, Kevin Starr, um, uh, and I said, I got to be wrong. Kevin Starr, I have to be wrong. And he said, you are right. There's nothing. Um, and so uh, my incredible uh, undergraduate and graduate students at USC um, uh, spent uh, with me about a year um, putting together the original primary research, uh, particularly from the late 1800s, early 1900s, to try to understand and, and kind of give answers to some of the questions that Roy raised um, in the forward and in, in our, our first conversations. So a lot of this book, there's about 250 or so menus um, that are reproduced in this book, both covers uh, and insides. Um, and uh, I, I go through a very, very long text uh, trying to get at these questions of cultural history. And I focus a lot on that early period. Um, there's some great research that we came up with that I think people are going to find very interesting about the birth of restaurants. We're able to prove what um, I think was what we can now say is the first, what was the first restaurant in Los Angeles, which, which was not La Rue's, which is what's usually reported, a restaurant from 1852. Um, it's always been reported that, it's, that that was a restaurant. Um, the first place to eat in a restaurant was in a hotel at the Bella Union Hotel in 1849, but the first standalone restaurant um, was one of two is either the National or the Old American. I'm, I'm starting to guess they might be the, might have been the same restaurant and changed their names. Um, but uh, in, in 1850. So the first place you could sit down at a restaurant in Los Angeles was in 1850. Um, and following that research up into the early 1900s, one of the things that we started to notice, which is really interesting in terms of thinking about today, um, you know, Roy talks about, um, you know, tacos and burgers and his own work, you know, with Kogi. And, and um, you go back to the beginning of food in L.A., and while there were banquets and all that, the first food experiences were vendors, were street vendors and tamal vendors uh, and ice cream vendors in the plaza. Um, and, so, and there were battles over street vending then um, in the 19th century, just as there were, you know, just as we have it now. Um, but L.A. has always been, historically, I can, we, we prove this in the book, a city that was known um, for being a place where working class people could get food. Um, a place where cheap, tasty, and fast, quick, 
must not say fast, quick, quick food was always a hallmark of Los Angeles. Um, and newspapers around the country would, would talk about Los Angeles in the early 1900s as the place to go um, that you could get, for, for 15 cents, you could get a steak, a cup of coffee, and a piece of pie. Um, and it's a place where you could be, you could be fed. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, in your, I mean, Roy, in your, could you talk a little bit about that sensibility of trying to kind of approach food as something that belongs to the people, something that, that to, to, you know, to make this city a, a kind of livable city? Um, and it's, I mean, it's obviously been important for your work. Um, you mean for me, myself? Yeah. Um, well, with Kogi, it, it, it was, it was a, a relationship with the people themselves. And um, I think we kind of defined it together. Um, and then for me as a chef and then the people within my camp and the team of Kogi, um, we were all kind of just figuring the whole thing out in the moment on the street. And, um, but our, our intentions were pure. And they were extremely honest. And um, all we wanted to do, we were like little children. Seriously, like, it's like we were little children with a lemonade stand. And all we wanted to do was like sell everything we had. And we would drive anywhere through the city um, because we knew we had something good. And um, for me as a chef, uh, it was a chance for me to kind of uh, figure out myself again. I had, a, I had a rebirth in my life. And so it was a bit of a... Um, I guess the best example is it would it was a bit of like a born identity thing where I had lived a whole life I had built up all of this kind of skill mm-hmm. but um I almost went through a stage of amnesia and and became a different person as I started selling tacos out here on the street um and then I was no longer a chef anymore but I had all of this stuff within me and so I I found a way to to express myself and that that way was just getting the food in people's hands. And so I was driven and possessed by that. And then that, that started to define what Kogi was. We never thought in terms of money. We always kept our prices low. And we just, um, you know, the mathemat- if you put it on paper, the mathematics of Kogi should have never made sense. Um, we were trying to give the best food we possibly could for two bucks. Um, and, but for some reason, there was this energy that just kept us all afloat. You know, um, I can't explain it. You know, was part of that energy though also the kind of the you know your your idea of you know L.A. in a bite, um, yeah. of kind of cultural mixture and cultural mashups happening through food, or trying to capture the city in food. Well, for me, it was when when I came up with that that flavor, um, it hit us. We ate it, and it, it was. I mean, if you can imagine, like um, even like a microfilm in a library, just everything, just in a second, my whole life flashed before me, and it everything that I had done fell into that one bite. Whether it was low riding in Norwalk, whether it was cruising through Pico Rivera, Whittier Boulevard, whether it was hanging out in Watts with my homies back when I was young, whether it was growing up in Koreatown, going to the park, uh, whether it was going. You know, growing up, moving from town to town, uh, all these little things, all these little moments in life growing up here in L.A., whether it was here in Los Feliz, um, just to get my hair cut over here in Vermont, and, you know, like, uh, just all these little things just came into this, and, you know, when we bit into it, it was almost like this, this, yeah, crazy thing, just all in one second, and it felt like L.A., you know, it really felt like L.A., and, um, and then we were just like, we got to get, like, it was like hot. It was like a hot potato. It was like, we got to get this fucking right. thing to people <laughs> before it dies, you know? And, um, yeah, it became this kind of, I don't know, it became this stand-by-me type of thing, you know? Like, we really just had to go out there, and we were seriously possessed by people have to experience this. There's no way that they can't touch this, um, because if it loses its light, 
then then something's gonna happen. Yeah. You know, it's funny when we, in the a lot of the early research for the book, mm-hmm. um, we found that there was all the, there was this kind of continual panic in the early early, early part of the twentieth century that LA didn't have a cuisine, um, and so people, food critics in the LA Times, uh, f- uh, food writers in New York would say, "Well, you know, LA doesn't have its own flavor; it doesn't have its own taste." And what they blamed it on was what was what repeatedly referred to as foreign elements. So LA was both celebrated as a place where you could walk down a street in downtown and go around the world, right? You could eat. Hungarian food, you could eat Mexican food, you could eat Chinese food, you can eat Japanese food, you could eat Chinese food at four Chinese restaurants right next to each other on Main Street in 1907. Um, and that was great for foreign food, but it was bad for LA, right? And so, and that all has changed now, where the opposite, in a way, is true. Yeah, um, it's almost like the city never changed, but the, the identity f- finally, finally fit. You know, we finally yeah. grew into it, you know. Um, Jonathan Gold definitely had a lot to do Absolutely. with it. Absolutely. I mean, that's Absolutely. been a, a key, a kind of key central point of, you know, yeah. so, so much of his writing. And he's in the book, too. We've got an essay by Jonathan in the book. Yeah, the way Josh structured this book was really fantastic. Um, not only did he involve his own personal stories and his, his intellect, but he curated a book where he got chefs to interpret menus and also essayists like Jonathan to write. Um, write little stories and, and little essays, and um, I don't know. Should we talk about a couple menus? Yeah, sure. We like, yeah, and we've got like Cynthia Hawkins. Re- uh, people go to Hawkins House of Burgers and Watts. If you don't go, um, uh, she remixed the menu. Joaquim Splishal remixed the menu. Susan Feniger, Nancy Silverton, yeah. Jazz Singsonong. Mika, Mika Wexler. Yeah, Mika Wexler, great, great, great group of folks. Um, and all kind of, I gave them menus to choose from, and they had to figure out if they were going to cook it in their restaurant now, how would they change it? So, you know, bye bye iceberg wedge, hello kale, um, <laughs> you know, no lard, buy mutton. I mean, there's a lot of mutton on the early menus, people. Yeah. Actually, I had a list, I wanted to read this. I, for an event we did the other night, I came up with this list, and Roy, I wanted to read it to you because I think it. it you might enjoy it. It's a list of some of the um, ingredients or dishes that have kind of um, have kind of vanished uh, over time, or maybe not so much. But these were these were frequent ingredients on early menus from the early, late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, lots of lamb kidneys, mm-hmm. a lot of mutton. Are you going to bring mutton back? Is it I, back? I don't think it's okay. Back. Uh, <laughs> curried pig's feet. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I had pig's feet at Sunny Spot, but like, no one ate it except us. Okay, you know, the cooks, you know. Um, this is a biggie: jellied consomme, an aspic. Lots of someone should open a like an yes. aspic restaurant, an aspic truck. I think that that would, <laughs> that would be really great. That would it? be really good. That could come back. Yeah, stick to teaching, Josh. Is that what you're saying? Um, fricadellin, fricadellin, like little meat patties that were made with leftover meat um, and breadcrumbs. Um, monk's beard salad. I know. Um, Point oysters. That was on a ton. Most of the uh, kind of the uh, elite restaurants were, were would advertise Toke uh, Point oysters, oysters from Toke Point in Washington. Um, and then, oh, when it's mutton, it, I also love this. I'd never heard this before. I don't know if you have mutton. Was the, the cut of mutton was a saddle of mutton? Yeah, it's the a whole, saddle. It's, yeah, yeah, that sounded good. Um, and 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 the and chicken was referred to as disjointed chicken, yeah. like pulled. Pulled chicken. Pulled chicken. Um, so you see a lot of the ingredients that don't come back, um, but certain things that mm-hmm. you know that 
stick around. Um, but one of the things on the exact menus themselves, like if you go in and if how many people have eaten a pot here? I want to see all those hands. Um, if you read, thank you. Um, if you read the menu at pot. I mean, that, that is a perfect example uh, of the menu as narrative, right? Yeah. And one of the stories among the many stories that Roy tells in that menu is you, I mean, you, you put your, your biography in there and you talk about mm-hmm. your identity. Um, yeah, it was a, uh, Pot's a complicated restaurant. Um, I don't know necessarily if it's a success or a failure. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't figured that out yet. Um, but b- basically what Pot is, is, uh, okay, at, for, for for those of us that grow up as immigrant children where our parents weren't raised in this country and don't speak the language, whether you're from India or you're Chicano or you're Korean-American like me or whatever, there's this weird place where you're not really Korean, you're not really American, right? And then you can't really explain it to anyone. You know, you can't explain it to your parents, can't explain it to the people from Korea, can't explain it to people from L.A., and so you, li- you always kind of live in this kind of weird um, purgatory of life. But then you're Korean, you know, or you're, or you're wherever your country was, uh, your blood is from. So um, what Pot was trying to do was trying to define for me a new, a new identity of being Korean. Because I wasn't Korean and I wasn't really fully, like by citizenship I'm American, but I wasn't fully like American. And so um, it was like, okay, this is my version of Korean food. Um, but it's done through the eyes of a Korean-American. Um, but it's right in the middle of Koreatown, and um, we're using all ingredients from Korea, and we're not like making it fusion food. We're doing the same techniques, but we're doing it through the way that I would cook it if I, was just, if I just saw these ingredients on the table. And um, people like it, but I don't, I don't know if the Koreans get it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, I don't think I can help you there. Yeah, I don't. I don't think they get it. Yeah. So, um, but yeah. But that. But that. That impulse, though, to say that this is a restaurant that's going to represent your story. It's going to represent immigrant stories. Yeah. It's going to represent the changing ethnic and racial makeup of that neighborhood, which is really, com- really complicated in terms of Koreans, yeah. Oaxacans, yeah. previously as a kind of Hollywood yeah. spot with the Ambassador Hotel. I mean, there's all these layers, right? Yeah. That the food. Yeah, and it was to. all that. It was just. Being LA, it was just being ourselves, and all the second generation got it, but the first generation didn't right. get it. And it was a little bit of a book. It was like if you think of like a children's book, it was like me stepping up on a milk crate and just with a little paper megaphone and just telling everyone like this is who I am. Fucking accept me, you know. Like this is who I am, you know. This is the food. This is my food, you know. This is my contribution to my right. race and my my culture, and uh, yeah. No, well, no that, one's but, what, <laughs> but what's interesting is that there's so many of the menus in the in the library's collection that tell similar stories, right? Yeah. And we feature them in the That's book. True. And um, you know, one one pair of menus actually that um, I had emailed with Roy about. So on the one hand, um, like from the 1930s, I, we have no visuals here, so I'll hold up. This is um, Maxi's Singapore Spa. People can see. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and obviously, um, with a racist character on the cover. Um, um, but you, then, you, you know, you flash forward 20 years, the 1950s, and you get Alan Lum's New Grand East Cafe, where he puts his own picture on the cover yeah. of his restaurant, right? Changing the representation. And I remember when I emailed that to you, do you remember what you said? Well, I, I, was, I said that it was so gangster of him to do that, because uh, <laughs> you've got to imagine this time in life, 
you know, and all the racism and, and, and you know, segregation and everything that was occurring in Los Angeles and just how hard it was for for the Chinese coming off the railroads, the development of the cities, everything going on, and um, and then for him to just stand up there with his menu, <laughs> yeah. you know. Just, you know. <laughs> you know, exactly. It, that was just so nice. Um, I mean, he he, just, he must have been a really strong cat, you know. Like, um, but we find a lot of that yep. in this book. Um, as we got through the kind of forties and fifties yep. around World War Two era, yep. we found uh, menus were using their menus as a lot of propaganda and um, kind of uh, as as a way to express their own racism. You know, yeah, there which was is very uh, bizarre. Nineteen forty. Two uh, barbecue uh, menu uh, from South LA um, that one would think at the time uh, had an emerging African American clientele um, because of wartime industry and new jobs. Uh, it was a barbecue restaurant um, that the menu was printed on a Mexican stock Mexican beer label with a Mexican bullfight illustration. Um, Vans Louisiana barbecue, uh, and uh, then at the because it was World War II, there was also food rationing. So there's a little note about food rationing at the bottom, and then up at the top uh, had a very derogatory um, statement about Japanese, um, saying that um, every every cent that you spend um, goes to send a Jap to hell, mm-hmm. right? So you have all of that on one menu, right? Which tells you about uh, all of that in terms of race and ethnicity, but also the changing demographics of the neighborhood, um, notions of citizenship and patriotism and national identity. I mean, it's all on this like throwaway menu that no one would care about. Um, and that's kind of one of the joys of this book is, is being able to like find these objects that people don't think about. Um, and then if you do spend some time with them, they kind of open up um, in, you know, into all these worlds. And that's like with African-American menus, um, you know, we have, there's a lot of, of, of menus that were white-owned um, menus, like this is Old Dixie uh, from 1950 on Western um, that was white-owned, white staff um, that sold black soul food, that, so that, that, that sold southern food, its attempt to sell southern food, um, that put a kind of Aunt Jemima figure on the cover of the menu. Um, and yet for all of those, you have your island lums, right? You, then you have Lan, um, Yancey Love, who started Fatburger, African-American woman who started the Fatburger chain. Um, you have the Stennis uh, family, uh, African-American family, started Golden Bird Fried Chicken, which I think is the, the still standing longest running black-owned restaurant in Los Angeles. Um, and you see that across the board uh, of people um, kind of moving into entrepreneurship to build communities, use restaurants as a way to build um, to build their own spaces in their own communities. Um, so things we still talk about right now in the 21st century were, were really happening throughout throughout the last century. Yeah, and then also not some of the not so deep stuff of just like it's all of, deep, Roy. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of us growing up and just like how LA was a town where we made these like teddy bear menus and like right. you know Bosby and cutout menus yeah. and like huge menus of like penguins you know or or like yeah of like buffaloes buffaloes and you yeah. open one end of the, at yeah. the ass of the buffalo and then you open the you open the uh, the horn of the buffalo, and then it's the drink menu and the dessert menu. Yes, all yeah. the die cut, heavily all designed the die menus. Cut, yeah, um, we don't do that enough anymore. And, wh- and why? Why do you think we don't? As a chef, I mean, is it just too expensive to do now? Do you think people don't care? Uh, that's a good question. I think it's. Uh, I, I don't think it's that we, no one 
has decided not to do it or anything. It's just maybe we just lost touch with it. You know, mm -hmm. you know, this, the focus has become more on the food. Uh, we've become stripped down a little more, um, become a little more pure and honest. Um, here, you were trying to lure people people in. We have yeah. different ways to lure people in now, as businessmen and restaurateurs. We have social media, obviously. We have yeah. we have different ways of communication. You know. Um, these were lasting moments, whereas things are now viral, yep. you know, so I, I think it was just, it's a different time, but it would be fun to bring these things back. Here's some of those menus as well, you know. Um, we call I, I, I started calling them programmatic menus, just like you have programmatic architecture, so buildings and the shape of the things that the building is being used for, uh, or in the shape yeah, of, yeah. you know, a hot dog uh, stand in the shape of a hot dog. The brown derby in the shape of a hat. He's a professor, so he uses those uh, big words. And, and they got menus that did the same thing, you know. So buffalo steakhouse in the shape of a buffalo, um, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Keg restaurant in the shape the of a keg, keg. exactly. Um, but what, and what's interesting about the design stuff that I want to make sure to mention is that part of this collection, what's in the book, is a donation that we got midway through um, from the Lord Printing Company, and the Lord Printing Company was the only menu printing company, sorry, the only printing company in the United States solely dedicated to printing menus. And they were functioning in downtown Los Angeles and basically only printed, um, uh, they only printed menus from, from most of, of the last century. And they would print on a daily basis. Restaurants would come, they'd do um, fresh new designs, new, you know, new layouts um, every single day. And so the son of the lead lithographer and um, manufacturer for the Lord Company donated their collection to the library. So we had, they donated about 300 menus. We've got a bunch of them in the exhibit, a bunch in the book. But we also got the printing blocks for some menus and some cookbooks. Um, and uh, one of them turned out to be this great little story that I didn't know until only recently where when they gave me the printing blocks, it was a little character, it was a kind of like a silhouette um, uh, of, a, of a man's face, and they said, "Oh, it's the it's the it's from the Dean Martin. It's that's Dean Martin. It's from the Dino's menu." And I said, "This is amazing. You know, we've got the original printing block for you know of Dean Martin." And so this is what we thought. We put that on the actual exhibit card um, until someone came through and said, "Yeah, that's not Dean Martin." And I and, and I said, "Okay, well, who is it?" And it's very hard to see. And he said, "Well, it's actually FDR, and it comes from a very very rare Brown Derby." Uh, menu where they put for just one week they put FDR's face on the menu and he's like and I happen to have it it's very very rare um, and uh, I had to tell the family I said I got a bad news for you it's not Dean Martin it's FDR they said it's absolutely Dean Martin everyone has believed this for generations in our family but <laughs> from Dean to FDR I think it's going up technically but they seemed they seemed uh, not so happy about it maybe we can pull this kind of full circle a little bit and then do some absolutely but yep. maybe we should kind of end with the Dresden Room, which is right here. Let's do it. And maybe it connects us to like all this talk of history and and um, just this exploration of our own city. You know, who's the um, professor now? Look at him. He's yeah. like, <laughs> the book. Everyone's opening their books. Yeah, yeah. Please turn Please to page uh, two hundred nine <laughs> in your syllabus. Right. Um, and. Uh, but like uh, I don't know, you know. Sometimes when you read a book, it seems so far away. But like literally, we're one block away. And if we can imagine ourselves, you know, 70 years ago, um, 1945, Friday, July 13th, uh, shrimp cocktail made with jumbo Louisiana shrimp, uh, cocktail sauce, 60 cents. Uh, you get um, a famous chef salad bowl. So it looks like it was a course menu in a way. 
Uh, you can order, you get the appetizer, one appetizer, and then you get the uh, salad. And then you can have the char charcoal broil spring chicken, old-fashioned beef stew with dumplings, $1.25, pot roast or beef of beef with buttered noodles, $1.50, mixed seafood fry, $1.25, Grilled chicken livers with bacon, $1.25. Fried jumbo Louisiana shrimp, $1.25. Charcoal broiled filet mignon steak, $2.40. New York cut steak, $2.40. Ground sirloin steak, $1.25. Calves liver with bacon, $1.50. This is a great menu, right? We could, I mean, you could... I, Hasn't changed no. probably that much. Or you could open a restaurant here on Vermont, and you could have you could open like a young chef could open this exact restaurant and probably kill it. Um, Lake Superior Whitefish dollar choice of lamb chops with bacon broiled choice lamb chops with bacon dollar seventy five. You get potatoes, vegetable, drink, dessert, all included. Amazing. The, the, Their rum drinks were already world famous by that time. That's right. I think I have a feeling they were world famous. Before they even open, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, one one of the big differences here also is they is they are op- they, they're they're openly proud of the fact that their food comes from somewhere else, right? So it's, yeah. it's from from Louisiana, from Lake Superior, and now That's of right. course That's you would it. not see people bragging on menus that their food comes from far away. Um, it mm-hmm. needs to come from a local farm, um, uh, farm to table. And that's what you see in the early 1900s. You see all the, er, all the early menus before mass industrialization of food and commercialization of food and refrigeration. All the menus were farm to table. They were all local from local farms. Um, and they, they announced it as such, not to prove a point, but just to say, like, we actually have food today. Um, and it comes from this, from our restaurant's ranch, direct from the ranch. Yeah. Uh, our sand dabs are from Catalina, um, not from far away. But mid-century, this is exactly what you saw. It's amazing. So as Roy said, it just keeps coming back around. Um, so we're happy to, to, to take some questions, have more conversation, and then, and then sign some books. If people have questions or stories, or we can just sign books. Hmm. Yes, sir. Well, actually... I was curious. Um, I, I live in Palms, and uh, I used to go to Chango all the time. Mm-hmm. And then you moved. Yeah. And I'm wondering, is that related to this at all, or is it simply a related to the book? To the book, yeah. The yeah. book made him move. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. how good this book is. Yes. Yeah, I had to be close to the library. That's you know? right. Um, good one. No, that that was just a simple tale of of just regular life. Uh, we had a three year lease. Um, we were about to re-sign our lease, and there was a lot of things that needed to be fixed in the building, and the landlord wasn't willing to fix them. You know, so then we were either we were faced with the decision to either like invest our own money to kind of make it happen and fix it, but then magically at that time, Chinatown approached us and said, "Listen, Roy, you know we'd love to have you in Chinatown. We'll do anything." And it was just one of those things. We just moved. You know, it's tough. You know, it's like. Uh, it hurts me every day, but it was, it's like when you move from sixth grade to eighth grade or something, you know, like, like if you move schools, it's just like you move, we just moved, you know, um, doesn't mean like all that didn't happen, it's just we moved, uh, but we're looking to go back, we're looking to go back for sure. Yeah. Oh. So Josh, you were saying before how the reputation of LA is always good as a city for... What's up, man? <laughs> class, this guy's got a great book. Working class communities. Um, but as I'm sure, as both of you and many people in the room well know, LA is becoming increasingly inhospitable for yeah. working class families and communities. In a lot of ways, restaurants have become. You have this great quote in the book about um, restaurants being sort of the shock troops for neighborhood. Churches. From not in my quote, from Huasu. Yeah. 
you know, so if you're living in a neighborhood and a gluten-free pizzeria opens in your corner, you know things are about to shift in some way. Yeah. So the question I have for both of you, yeah. and Roy, maybe this is a way for you to talk a little bit about local, is how have restaurants become complicit in the sort of transformation of the city, and how can it play a role in sort of helping to preserve neighborhoods, and more importantly, the communities that, that exist within those spaces? You know, so that's a really tough question because... As a, it, it, there are two parts to it. One is, as a restaurateur, I know that these restaurants aren't going in to try to gentrify a neighborhood in many cases. They're just trying to, they found a cheap place, they're trying to make good food. A good example is like, um, maybe like Squirrel here on Vir Virgil, right? You know, that's a, you know, Virgil, Melrose, and Normal, that shit is Latino to the core, you know? But then all of a sudden, you know, you have quinoa bowls and, and avocado but I know Jessica's she's a really great person she works hard so like she's just trying to cook good food that just naturally happened but I think as far as where how it to be sensitive it, it comes down to the people involved they have to make an effort to really speak to the neighborhood like I can only speak for myself like for, for Koreatown you know we opened a huge hotel in the middle of Koreatown but um, we opened it with with the culture and, and the ideology and, and the attitude and the life of, of the neighborhood. And so really we opened it as a resource and as a playground for the neighborhood. Um, and so to me, I feel like it, was, it helped the neighborhood and didn't push people out. Um, I feel like it would be the same thing for Watts with, with local. So for me, my approach is to feed the people directly next to me first. And then if others come, that's great, but you got to come on terms on the terms of the neighborhood. Now, the gluten-free pizza in, in Bushwick, you know, that changes the neighborhood, you know, um, I don't know, man. You know, I, to me, it's a, a mixture of a lot of different things, but it comes down to the actual people involved going to the place and actually opening the place. You got to look around. You gotta sometimes open your fucking eyes and look around and just say like, okay, wait a second, like, we're not entitled to any of this shit here, you know, like, we, you know, just because we can afford to come in here doesn't mean that we own this and we, that we can just bulldoze everything around us. You just gotta be a little sensitive and, and find, find strength and joy in the layers and where you're going. Um, for me, I try to research everything before I go in. So like, okay, going into Watts. I didn't grow up in Watts, but before picking Watts, I spent almost six, seven months getting to know the community of Watts, being a part of them, asking them to allow me to come in. Not me saying I'm going to go into Watts. You know, I spoke to every single person in Watts, from the gangbangers to the teachers to the to the community leaders, to the to the mothers, to the to the children, everything, and then just waiting for them to tell me, you know, you got the pass. And then uh, just like a month ago, they gave me the pass. You know, so then so for that, that was huge for me. Um, I, I feel like if people take that approach, then you might not see things like what happens in Highland Park or Bushwick. You know. Thank you. Yes, sir. Is that like a common discussion between? Yeah, I don't think it's a discussion, but it. I, but I think it's a an abstract discussion in when you decide to at where you set your price point, you know. And I think that is probably where a lot of it 
we can focus and then see to find solutions and answers. Because for me, I'm not, I, I don't like to try to live life to always be antagonistic. You know, like if a place moves in, you know, you can't stop them from moving in. And if they're serving great food, that's ultimately a great thing. But, uh, but the bridge is if you're moving into a neighborhood you're not from, and then you all of a sudden charge five times the price that people can afford, and other people go to that neighborhood, then what are you really saying to that neighborhood that was there? So uh, to me, it starts with the price, you know. Um, and if you, as a as an entrepreneur or as a restaurateur or a chef, can really be honest and look around you and say, like, can people afford this twelve dollar toast or this? you know, $7 cappuccino or whatever, you know, um, it, it, am I really doing the right thing? No pun intended, you know, am I really doing the right thing? And um, I think if you can, if, if you can answer those questions, then there can be some bridges built. Yeah. And I think just historically speaking, you know, we found plenty of evidence that, those, that versions of this conversation have been going on you know, for a century and a half. There was a restaurant in um, the original Chinatown uh, called Jerry's Joint um, that at the bottom of their menus and on the bottom of their checks um, would refer to the, to, to the restaurant as Jerry's Joint, that strange place of elbowing. And that idea of restaurants as strange places of elbowing, of, of potential sites of, um, uh, of, of people meeting up, of encounters happening that maybe wouldn't happen in some other context, doesn't always happen, of course, but I think that that's something that, that historically has always been a part of restaurant culture. Uh, restaurants are always, I write about in the book, they've, they've always been both um, borders and bridges, right? They, they, they're as much keep out signs as they are come on in signs. Um, but I've never met a chef uh, who didn't want to feed someone in their restaurant. Yeah. I mean, every chef I've ever talked to about these issues will say, like, yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. We think about all these issues. And if someone wants to come eat at our restaurant, though, the door is open. So you don't think no um, restaurants come into neighborhoods and try to change them? I don't know. I, I can't speak to the intentions of you know of restaurant owners. I'm sure that that does happen, um, uh, it, especially if restaurants are part of larger chains, um, have corporate backing, uh, have ties with developers, um, larger structures. Yes, for sure. Um, but mom and pop, I don't know so much. I don't know. Um, but that, that that would be a really interesting project is actually to do interviews with folks opening restaurants, talking about intentionality, talking about how they see community, you know, those kinds. Thanks. Yes. Yeah. Um, you mentioned going to a huge meeting with chefs from all over the world. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering whether you and other chefs and restaurateurs here in LA ever get together regularly to talk about these issues that you that you're raising. Um, not so much. Um, we, because we're always working. You know, as as the chefs, the chefs themselves. So. Um, a lot of times the way we see each other is either at an event, you know, um, or maybe we'll go to each other's restaurants and eat and stuff. But, uh, but there's a lot of times there's not this kind of like town hall meeting where we get together once a month, you know, and stuff like that. There should be, you know. Maybe it can be done more, you know, on a digital basis, you know, as far as like creating like a chow hound chat room or something for, for chefs. But, um, no, like, yeah. Well, Mad Mad was an attempt to do that. Yeah. You know, uh, Renee, who who developed Mad, who runs the restaurant Noma, was it was his attempt to bring chefs together to unplug and to ask questions about what it was we were doing as chefs. So, I would say that's a start. Yeah. 
Yeah. One more question, and then we'll get to the get maybe to two, two more. Oh, two more? Yeah, we'll right. both put their hands up at the same time. Okay, two more. To look at these type of issues from a slightly different perspective, um, the type of work that people like yourself, Roy, and, and you know, other conscientious restaurateurs do is really important and can be really impactful, um, certainly and especially on a local level. But ultimately, ultimately, a lot of restaurateurs are also going to respond to incentive, right? And you can't necessarily either blame them or be surprised for responding to incentives based on the way that the system, you know, is. So I was wondering if you guys, um, as restaurateurs and scholars and students of the industry, if there are certain you know, institutional reforms or things like that that you think are really important to try to address some of these issues in a more systemic way. So we're not just relying on, well, let's just hope that every single restaurateur I mean, do you want to talk about maybe the three worlds story? I mean, how you know how three worlds is created? I mean, I think is is one example. That's when, whenever I'm asked that question, I think about three worlds as an example of an effort yeah. um, to work with community, to work with business, um, with Dole, yeah. um, uh, and to work with students, to work with students at Jefferson High School yeah. to create um, healthier food options um, in their neighborhood. Um, and that's just one model of many. I think we're living, we just had an event at the library um, uh, a few nights ago. Um, Excuse me, I gotta go. Hey, I have a question. <laughs> do, do you know who, who created, created, created uh, the humans? Do <laughs> 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 you know who created, created, created the humans? I think the human the created the humans. Huh? Human. Human created everything. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah, human created human. Human created a human? Yeah. The human kind created a yeah. the human? I think so. In, in this planet or I think so. around the world? Around the world. On the dimension. Yeah, yeah I think so. You understand my English? Yeah, a little bit. Sounds, sounds, sounds. Um... So I think that there. I think right now we had this event at the library uh, that Ron was at. Who was just we just asked a question a second ago, where we had all these folks working in, in on these very issues. Um, I think there's never been a time in Los Angeles. Was that? Can you explain more clearly what the three whatever the three four, 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 four. Oh yeah, he's talking oh, about um, as an example as a bridge of using big big business, um, and then and then. Like, chefs don't have many resources, right? But we have a lot of ideas. And then, so we end up opening small places that, you know, in turn, either improve a neighborhood or maybe gentrify a neighborhood, whatever. But we're really opening small businesses. But then there's companies like Dole that have millions and millions of dollars, but then that are sometimes a little bit detached from from everyday life and working life. And, um, and then... So then what we did with Dole in Three Worlds is we, we used the money of Dole and the resources and the power of them, but brought it really down to the grassroots local level. And, um, but then the ideas came from, from my camp, from our team. And they, so they were rooted to the people, but we used the resources of a big company. And sometimes th those unions don't happen a lot because we, we tend to blame big companies for the problems. What I've been trying to do is instead of blaming them, use them to fix the problems that they created in many ways. So that's kind of the model. 
Right. That's yeah. Three Worlds Cafe on, on Central. Yeah. Um, and anyway, I was just going to say that there's a lot going on right now in Los Angeles. I don't think there's been a time in, 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 you know, in L.A. where food organizing, food activism, community efforts toward reforming the food system on hyper-local levels. I mean, it's happening all across the city, all across the county. Um, people are doing incredible work right now. If you go to the Library Foundation website for this project, we've got tons of links to all these different organizations, policy reports. Uh, on food access and, and um, food issues in Los Angeles. Tons of resources that, that, that I think will help answer those questions. Um, thank last, you guys so much. One. Oh, last one. Last one, sorry. Okay, thank you. It's a little bit of a big question. But, um, so, Roy, you were talking about uh, pot and how it's a kind of a complicated restaurant for your own personal ethnic identity within the uh, mm -hmm. American community. So I wonder... In thinking about Kogi and the success of Kogi, if you've also considered um, the, su the success of Kogi in relation to like the Chicano community, if mm -hmm. you've received any kind of acceptance or any kind of like feedback from that community, because you draw from both cultures, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I definitely got accepted. You know, uh, you know, I go by Poppy here in L.A. and. Uh, you know, um, every neighborhood, every block we go to, you know, I mean, Kogi gets respect for sure. Kogi was, but Kogi is more than being like an eth ethnicity or, um, or a race thing. Kogi was L.A. You know, so all my restaurants are kind of like different kind of, I don't know, facets of who I am. And like pot was a very personal thing. Chego was... Um, Chego is kind of a, was an exploration of like uh, the double life that immigrants lead, lead as far as when you're a kid, like you have to hide the food in your home sometimes. Um, and then you go and bring a different packed lunch to school and you come home and your refrigerator is bubbling with all kinds of fermenting things. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so um, Chego was kind of like, I just opened the refrigerator to the world, like, go ahead, look, fuck it. And, you know, like, I'm not hiding, I'm not hiding it anymore, you know, so. Um, and then Kogi was just straight up streets. It was just me as a person, my team, everyone, just it represented Los Angeles. You know, people, it was really the media that coined it kind of like Korean, Mexican, you know, fusion, all that stuff. But really, it was just Los Angeles. So it became a lot easier for us to express ourselves because we were just being ourselves growing up in the city. Um, so that, but I was surprised at how fast Kogi got respect, you know, with the other loncheras and, uh, you know, in all the neighborhoods we went to, you know, for sure. So, thank you. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. We will be here signing books uh, to live and die in LA and LA Sun. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.